When are you an American Express member? When you travel with the American Express Platinum Card and have access to Centurion lounges at over 40 locations worldwide, you're a member. When your American Express Platinum Card gets you seated at exclusive tables at renowned restaurants through Global Dining Access by Resi, you're a member. When you arrive at live events through dedicated American Express Card member entrances at select venues, yeah, you're a member. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. When you buy a new house, you might say, Shut the front door. Winning. No, seriously, shut the front door. We own this house now. But you actually need to say, Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. The local State Farm agent is there to help you choose the coverage you need. Welcome to my crib. <laughs> no one says that anymore, but I don't care. So just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hey, everyone, I'm Wilmer Valderrama. And I'm Mr. Raquel. Welcome back to Essential Voices. Thank you. Um, oh, we're welcoming everyone else. So <laughs> you weren't talking to me. What? thanks. <laughs> You're already um, here. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, on today's show, we'll be speaking with three badass Latina trans women, all who have been luchando for trans rights for years. I'm humbled that these women chose to share their stories with us today, and I can't wait for you to hear. I can't wait either. And as a queer person, I'm so honored to hear these stories and learn from such powerful Latina trans women. So first, we're going to hear from our essential worker, Lisa Ceballos. We spoke to her from her offices at the Trans Latina Coalition where she's a case manager and helps to provide critical services to the trans, gender non-conforming, and intersex communities of Los Angeles. She'll tell us about her own journey that brought her to the Trans Latina Coalition and what it's like to work with her community and how she's been challenged during the pandemic. After we speak to Lisa, we'll have a roundtable with the founder and CEO of the Trans Latina Coalition, Bambi Salcedo, along with activist and model Garwin Carrera, who is a CEO herself of CC3 Entertainment. Sounds great, Enmar. I can't wait. Lisa's story starts now. A quick note to listeners. We recorded remotely with Lisa from her office at the Trans Latina Coalition. You'll occasionally hear some background noise when she speaks. Lisa, I'm so happy to talk to you today. So tell me who you are and uh, what's important to you. You know, I know it's a kind of a big, broad question, but I'd love for you to talk a little bit about yourself. Well, I was born in the U.S. When I was young, I ended up going to study in a school where my dad's studying in Mexico, which is a small town called Tecatitlan, Jalisco, which is amazingly the first mariachi ever made in the world was actually made there, which is the Mariachi Vargas de Tecatitlan. I studied there for my elementary. Then I came over here. I got into junior high. I started my transition doing junior high pretty early. I never had that much issues until I started like showing more of my transitioning in high school. Once I started like doing the hormone therapy and, you know, before being trans, I was gothic. So I remember people used to think that I was a devil worshiper and I used to paint my face white. I remember I'll be in the middle of the gym where like my face melting and they'll be like, oh, she's a devil worshiper. So when I fully transition, nobody will mess around with me because they'll be like, oh, she'll put a spell on you or something. (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to kind of recap a little bit about that moment, that transition moment, because I feel like there was something very uplifting and accepting and beautiful about what you're saying. Can you uh, tell me a little bit about the transition, the reception and how everybody was like? Well, I mean, I had real good times, but then I also have really challenging times. I remember that in that time, it was not that much known as I believe it was one of the first trans women openly to like transition during my high school times. I remember having volleyball tennis and they wouldn't allow me to change in the girls locker. 
And at that time I was taking my hormone therapy and I already had breast developed, you know? So I started to be in a, a little bit of a rebel. I told myself, okay, fine. You don't want to let me change either in a restroom or at the girls locker. Then I would change here in front of all the guys. So then when I did it, it, it spiced a big controversial, you know, I got sent to the deans. They were like, oh, you know, who do you think you are? Why? I'm like, well, I'm just being myself. I'm asking for support and guidance. But obviously, you know, like I wasn't giving that into like this teacher, Commons Jones, which he identified as a gay male. He started taking me to different events, me and other people that identified gay or lesbian, you know, and um, we started empowering ourselves. I remember in Eagle Rock College, I think to this day, they have an event there every year where like they inform community about like transitioning, about your rights. And they also do like a nice festival at the end of the day. They have this podium where you're able to speak and people do speeches and they just empower community, you know? For me, that was really important because that was the first time I went to an event like that. And I told myself, you know, like I can stand up for myself. I don't have to like let people like tell me what to do, or what should I do or not do, you know? There was even time that teachers would tell me like, maybe you shouldn't transition right now. You should just wait and study. And then like, once you're like in college and stuff like that, maybe then you can transition, you know? And I was like, no, I refuse to do that because this is who I am, you know? I want us to talk a little bit about the first day you walked into the Transline Coalition and maybe just a little bit before it, and then as you kind of discover that community and that place for you. I was doing this program. I was close to being homeless because I was battling with substance abuse at one point in my life. And um, my grandpa had passed away and I was staying with him. I was in an engagement that went totally wrong. So I decided I wanted to change my life around, you know, and I started doing this program called Foot on Foot, which is an amazing program in Hollywood where like supposedly they give you your own studio apartment. They help you save five thousand dollars. To this day, I still go volunteer there because it has literally been a part of my journey that has changed my life drastically as Translating Now Coalition has too. As I was doing that program and I was almost finishing it to getting my apartment, they support you on you obtaining a job. So at that time I was volunteering at Translatina. They had an event at the Forever Hollywood Cemetery and it was about paying tribute to the trans women that were murdered that year, you know, and we were making an altar. I always been really passionate, right? So they were like, just make sure, you know, you don't go overboard talking to the people. And when the people came, you know, I just, this passion just grew. And I just told them about the women that were murdered that year, you know, and like how much has that impact the other community members and how the work that we do. So then people started getting really passionate. I started bringing a big ass crowd. My boss was sitting down in a chair with the other supervisors and they saw me and they were like, just breathless and then people were even giving me money to donate to the organization they um my boss was like I want you to work for me and I'm like but I don't even have skills I'm working in an office or ever doing anything to do with direct services and she's like I started the same way you know like and look at me where I'm at now you know so if I can do it you can do it and I believe in you and I know that everything else you can learn it as you go you know and yeah I started part-time as a outreach specialist, then I got full-time specialist, then I became an intake recruiter, and now I'm a case manager. <laughs> and I thought being a case manager because I just thought that it's a big responsibility because the lives of people really depend on you connecting onto services, on you getting them housing specifically is one of the biggest challenges we have to this day, especially when it comes down to the trans and non-binary community. So describe what it's like to be a case manager during the pandemic. How did you adjust? How did you evolve through that process? For me, I think I it embraced me, actually, to be a more of an active listener. Like, I was already an active listener. I thought I was. But believe it or not, like, a lot of my clients just needed somebody to talk to them because the high volume of mental health going on because people being in their house not coming out. I had a significant amount of clients that were, like, more interested Yeah, service came along with it, but just having a case manager that is able to relate to you because they're trans too, and you're able to tell them your deepest challenges and like what you're going through emotionally, it was really, really touching. Can you talk about how the community was disproportionately affected by the pandemic? And maybe you share some specifics on that as well. Well, it's important to say even before COVID-19, my community always been affected with the challenges of work, housing, 
and just having a decent, dignified life to have the essential needs that they need. A lot of us don't, like I said earlier, we don't have family members or people that we can rely on or just like other people when they lost their job or their home, they just went with their mom or their dad or their brother or their sister to live. But then a lot of members of my community also come from other countries where like they don't have no family members here. So they didn't have that option to like go to their families for support or for, or in some of them, families don't even want to know nothing about them because they identify as trans, you know? So it was just more challenging than what it already was before COVID-19. And it still continues to this day. And even though if COVID has been getting better, you know, like those challenges still continue to be there on the table for us, you know, to survive and to like have the opportunities that everybody else has, you know, that is having even a job, it's challenging, you know? Yeah. Is there a memory? Is there something? Is there a story? Is there a moment that kind of has kept you going during this time? Um, I get kind of emotional because just when you actually give out the assistance that we've been giving in one of our programs called COVID-19 Rental Assistant. And even though it's not that much, just having the client look at you and literally like, thank you and say how grateful they are because when everybody else closed the doors on them or they didn't got the support or the help from any other place they done with us, you know, like it's touching because, you know, they start crying and then it's hard for you not to cry because, you know, you have to be strong and just be like, you know, don't worry. This is why we're here for and we're going to continue working on this and this is our job and we love doing what we do, you know? What would you tell your younger self? To not be so hard on yourself. Just continue your journey and I honestly like feel like nothing ever stopped me. Like I let nobody stop for me being my authentic self and just continue pushing. I wish I would have like told myself, you know, like, I love you. You're cared for, you know, like your value, you know, don't give up because there was parts of my life where like I felt there was no future for me because I identify as trans, you know? And for a minute I thought it was just doing sex work or doing things to survive, you know? Cause that's how I felt. I felt like I had to be surviving at every day. Just say, like, be faithful, be hopeful that in the future there is now services that my community can access, you know? And it's just a, it's just the beginning, too. Uh, Lisa, I'm so proud of your story. I'm so proud of everything you said to me today. I'm humbled by your time as well. And um, just continue the great work. I mean, you really are doing unbelievable. And we celebrate you because how essential You've been before and during and now as we exit this pandemic, you should be very proud of yourself, you know, and thank you for looking beautiful today, too. <laughs> I try. Now. No, thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored to be here with all of you in here today that give me the opportunity to fill out this space to like speak my truth and my story to everybody else that might be hearing somewhere out there in the world, you know. I love so much of that interview especially imagining Lisa dressed gothic, as she says, with the painted white face and how badass it is that she found power as a young trans woman to stand up for herself because her classmates thought she could cast spells on them given her gothic look if they were insensitive towards her. And I also love that story that Lisa told at the Forever Cemetery, where just by being herself and sharing her passion, she both made money for the coalition and landed her job. Absolutely. And in turn, she's been able to use her position to continue to help trans women in the same situation she was in. It's such an inspiring cycle. When we get back, we'll talk with Bambi Salcedo and Carmen Carrera. When are you an American Express member? When you travel with the American Express Platinum Card and have access to Centurion lounges at over 40 locations worldwide, you're a member. When your American Express Platinum Card gets you seated at exclusive tables at renowned restaurants through Global Dining Access by Resi, you're a member. When you arrive at live events through dedicated American Express Card member entrances at select venues, yeah, you're a member. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. When you buy a new house, you might say... 
Shut the front door. Winning. No, seriously. Shut the front door. We own this house now. But you actually need to say, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. The local State Farm agent is there to help you choose the coverage you need. Welcome to my crib. <laughs> no one says that anymore, but I don't care. So just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. A quick note to listeners. We recorded remotely with Bambi from her office at the Trans-Latina Coalition. You'll occasionally hear some background noise when she speaks. Today we're here speaking with activist and model Carmen Carrera and the founder and CEO of the Trans-Latina Coalition, Bambi Salcedo. Hey, Carmen. Hey, Bambi. I'm so, so excited and really honored that you're here with us today. I'm just really excited for this conversation. Wilmer, want to start us off? Carmen, Bambi, I'm so grateful to have you both with me today. How did you feel about listening to Lisa's story and uh, what stood out for you? Maybe we'll start with you, Carmen. I think stories like Lisa's are so important for us just to hear and to listen to because you can you can hear that sincerity in her voice. And I think, like you said, like you said, that it was very humbling to speak with her, like just to listen to her and like just to remind myself as a trans person of the journey that I've taken as well. It means a lot because, you know, we have so many similarities and might not be the same exact story, but it's that drive, that resiliency to like want to redefine what the possibility of life could be for being trans or for being an immigrant or for being just different and being sort of viewed by society as like not acceptable or taboo, you know? And just for me as a young person, I was always looking for somewhere to express my love to other people. And as an adult, I find that I hesitate a lot. And I think it comes from wanting to fit in with the right crowd and then feeling so othered and then trying to break through that, you sort of question, like, is this real? Like, am I actually stepping into my power? And like, am I really accepted? You know, like you sort of have those little voices in the background. I think that a lot of us trans folks, whether we decide to transition or not, just going through the steps of like becoming your full self and wanting to reinteract with the world, but then also give back. I think it takes a lot of strength and courage. And that's one of the things that I always draw from my sisters, my brothers and sisters, is that we're so strong. And, and even though sometimes we have those moments of weakness or we have those moments of like second guessing or being fearful, we all rise to the occasion. I think that's like the most beautiful part, you know, and that really kind of touched me to just hear her voice and hear about what she's been through. Should I just jump in? Or? Yeah, yeah, this is your, this is your place. You own the place, Mammy. <laughs> Thank you. Um, just listening to Lisa, uh, you know, I learned actually a couple of things that I didn't know about Lisa. Lisa's story is sort of like super close to me because she reminds me a lot of myself. When I first started working in social justice space, right, like I didn't know nothing really. And I also started as a outreach worker, right? Like, and for me, it was when I started my transition. I stood up in corners with many trans women, right? Like, you know, as sex workers. And going back to the same corners, to the same people who I once stood up with, like in a different light to provide education and to provide, even to provide condoms, right? It was just life-changing for me. But that was also like the exact experience for Lisa, right? Because that's how she started working with us here. And just like seeing her evolution, right? Like seeing the way she talks and seeing the way she interacts with the people who we work for and just seeing her growth and development. You know, there's so many Lisas out there. There's so many Rambis out there. There's so many 
people who need that support and validation, right? To let them know, you know, that they are amazing and that they are incredible, right? Because oftentimes what we hear as trans people, particularly trans women of color, for the most part is that we should not exist, right? That we are a condemnation, that we that we're not good, basically, right? And so when we can prove them wrong, we can develop and we can become the amazing people who we are destined to be, right? And so just to me, hearing Lisa's story and, and way of uh, expressing herself, you know, is just amazing. It's just, I, I feel like a proud mom, you know, <laughs> because it just affirms that the work that I have done for over 25 years in the community, it shows. Bambi, you say that you see a lot of yourself in in Lisa and that you've had sort of a similar trajectory as the one that she shared with us. You know, how Lisa came to work at the Trans Latina Coalition by starting as a volunteer, and now she's a case manager. And you were saying, even with your own social justice journey, to use your words, that you started at the beginning doing outreach and community support. So could you share the story of how you founded the Trans Latina Coalition and maybe also all the steps that it took you to get you where you are today? The Trans Latina Coalition came into existence because of a need. In 2009, there were two prominent national translator organizations that obviously would do amazing work. But unfortunately, at that time, they were not including the needs and issues of trans Latina immigrant women. So I gathered some friends and started like, okay, well, we don't have a voice. We, you know, what are we going to do about it? So that's how we started in 2009. I actually had the opportunity to be part of a statewide HIV conference that the State Office of AIDS was putting together. And because I was part of the planning committee, I asked to have a meeting space. And because I was a part of the planning committee, I reached out to people in different places across the state who were translatinas. And so I got them all together and talked about, like, what are we going to do? And that's how we started organizing. I was also very lucky and fortunate that in 2009, I was also approached by the organizers of the United States Conference on AIDS for me to be one of the opening plenary keynote speakers. And so part of my packet, also what I requested was to get a meeting space. And that conference took place in San Francisco in October of 2009. And I created a flyer and I invited people from different places across the United States to come to this meeting. And so that's how we started. That's how we went national right away. And I remember that back then we were just organizing via conference calls. It was all volunteer-run organization, and you know, and it was made of leaders from around the country. And so that's how we started organizing with this idea of changing the structures that marginalize our community, right? Trans Latin American women. And then, like, we did amazing work thinking in that way. But as we were trying to also organize people across the country we were also seeing the members of our community were not having access to the basic things that they need, like housing, food, and all of those things, right, that are essential for people to live and survive. And so I was working in Atrinus Hospital Los Angeles as the coordinator of their transgender program. And in 2015, we came together and decided that in order for us to also address that issue in our community, that we also needed to move into doing service provision. And so... As a leap of faith, I left my really great and amazing job that I loved and dedicated myself into building the Transatlantic Coalition. And we serve as a model to other places. And so we got our first official grant in January 2016. And that was specifically to support uh, trans women who were getting released from immigration detention because then the detention center was here in Santana, California. And also then the Obama administration created this transgender pod. Um, and that's where they were housing trans women. And that was in Santana. So we were doing visitations and supporting people, connecting them with lawyers and all kinds of stuff. We got the grant to support them when they get out, because when they get out also, when they have cases pending or, you know, what have you, they... They don't have no support. And as Lisa mentioned also, right, like many of us don't have family here. 
And so, you know, that's how we started a service provision part of it. And since then, in just five years, we have built a multi-purpose, multi-service space here in Los Angeles. Um, there's now 15 of us working here at the organization, and we continue to do the work in those two fields, right? Like the direct service provision and also the policy change, which, you know, I, I can also share about the policies that we have also helped pass and, you know, do. We'll be right back after this break. When are you an American Express member? When you travel with the American Express Platinum Card and have access to Centurion lounges at over 40 locations worldwide, you're a member. When your American Express Platinum Card gets you seated at exclusive tables at renowned restaurants through Global Dining Access by Resi, you're a member. When you arrive at live events through dedicated American Express card member entrances at select venues, yeah, you're a member. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. When you buy a new house, you might say, Shut the front door. Winning. No, seriously, shut the front door. We own this house now. But you actually need to say, Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. The local State Farm agent is there to help you choose the coverage you need. Welcome to my crib. <laughs> no one says that anymore, but I don't care. So just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscore team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit underscore.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Welcome back to Essential Voices. Turning it over to you, Carmen, you advocate for trans rights in various public spheres, especially in the media. So I'm wondering if you can share what inspires you to speak out when you do and what role you think that members of the media have in the larger conversation about trans advocacy. So what inspires me the most is like to create the reality that I already have in my mind. Like I'm a human being, you know what I mean? Like I get it. People have their biases when it comes to trans people, but I'm not going to let that stop me. Like I am extremely grateful for the family that I have, how tight knit we are. And once I stepped foot into the entertainment realm, I already came with a package of like, I'm going to prove you wrong because all my whole childhood, I was told that gay people are this and trans people are that. And as a young person, you're still sort of forming like, what's the truth? And so when I stepped into my, I guess, young adulthood, I was like, trans people are not what they're saying they are. Gay people are not you know, this punching bag, like we're not that. And so I've always lived sort of like one foot in like the cis world and like the other foot in like the LGBT community, sort of like trying to find balance. And so that's always my inspiration is to like bridge the gap of what's false and what's fear-based and what's like the truth and what's closer to love. So that's really what inspires me. And I think in the media, if there's a huge responsibility of using the right terminology, not bringing your subconscious bias into the articles or into the picture that you're painting, and also to give us our humanity and see us less as like the Jerry Springer vibes, you know, Ripley's Believe It or Not vibes, and like actually like see the person that we are and the reason why we're going so hard. And especially for people like me in the public eye, like what we're actually putting out there in the world it's not an easy thing. It's very difficult to be judged. I think any entertainer will tell you that because we're probably really hard on ourselves as it is. But when it comes to something that is as sacred as like how you identify and going through changes, physical and stuff like that, like it's another level of vulnerability. And when we're giving people access to that, it's like have a little bit more respect for the human what advice or what thoughts or what visions or, or, or what path do you see then where we can actually help support that? I think it all comes down to intention and it comes down to humanizing the experience of why you're telling the story. Cause I deal with a lot of like stereotypical trans roles and it makes it harder for me. I mean, we already have 
I mean, I try not to come from a place of lack, but we do have a lack of trans representation on scripted shows and in, in movies and stuff. And I try to think about my real life and I try to think about how I can use parts of my life to benefit my community, inspire my community, and also create change for those who have accepted an ignorant false reality of who we are. So I think it all starts off with your intention. Like if someone's writing a role for an immigrant person, what exactly are you doing here? Are you going to be uplifting? Are you going to be telling a story you know, the truth? Are you going to be showcasing our culture? Are you going to be, you know, let's be more thoughtful about the reasons why we're telling these stories when it comes to marginalized communities. Like, are we helping to make change or are we just fueling more ignorance and creating a community where it's okay to be hateful or to treat people wrong? I think On the flip side, us as artists and us as actors or performers, we should be putting in that work. You know, sometimes it takes for us to write it ourselves. I never thought that I would consider myself to be like a writer or anything like that. But, you know, I'm starting to like think like, well, I might have to just write this myself and like send it to my agent and hope it'll something will come from it. Yeah. And also the creative partnerships, right? It's not just like, well, man, we have to do it on ourselves, right? I think the biggest factor here is that we do have to collaborate with the system that's in place because unfortunately there's a traditional format in how you get things done, right? But as it all changes, as it all evolves for us, I think it's interesting what you're saying and creating some real creative collaborations. And I talk a lot about creative collaborations because our communities have never really been invited to the professions that dictate how this content goes. I mean, we've never been told we could be directors and writers. You know, we've never been invited to to learn how to write a script. But these are things that pioneers like Bambi and you, Carmen, can really, really inspire young people to say, hey, you know, maybe I can do it myself. Or even if I learn how to write, maybe I can be in a writer's room to actually make that better on screen, right? To have those characters actually really feel like it breathes and moves the way that that I do. You know, and I think that is a, that's a really interesting starting point. I think that that starts the snowball. There's also too like if I can just be 100 percent honest and transparent, like I feel like there's a sense of urgency and it, maybe it could be linked to my own personal calling. But I, I don't know. We're dealing with the pandemic. We're dealing with, you know, it's, it's kind of a little bit of a challenge, you know, to collaborate creatively. But I, I'm really in touch with my community members and a lot of the girls that I know, they don't want to do sex work anymore. You know, they deal with what's the narrative in play and, and what opportunities they do have versus what possibility exists out there for just some of us. And so I feel their pain a lot of the times because they feel like they have less options because they can't seem to find, I guess, a quote unquote normal, like functioning role in society. And so it's either being pulled back to have to give in to this narrative of being a fetish in order to find peace because they're not able to find it in real life. And I guess there is a level of tokenism that happens in the media sometimes. It's like, oh, there's only one spot in a fashion show. There's only one spot on the cover of a magazine. And then it's like a lot of these, I guess, maybe outlets or like larger companies or brands, you know, they're saying they're changing the world. But in reality, it's not really creating that much change. It's creating more stress because there's such a lack of representation. So I don't know, for me, I I just feel like there's a sense of urgency to let the world know that, there are spaces that trans people can function in that are safe and to show what that looks like. Cause I haven't really seen it yet. Thank you for bringing that up, Carmen, because it is true, right? The position that we hold within our society, right? Like just in general, I mentioned earlier, right? Like some of my friends who I stood up in a corner with, I'm 52 years old now. Right. And so they're in their 50s, 60s, and they didn't know anything but sex work. You know, a lot of them won't be able to get any type of benefits because they never worked. They never contributed anything to, to their social security. Many don't have family to care for them and stuff. And so it's really sad. And then also there's studies that say that trans people are the most poor. The average trans person makes about $10,000 a year. And then we get hit with a global pandemic. Most trans people were not even able to get 
the stimulus support that most people got, neither the 600, the 1200, or why? Because the majority of trans people are not working and continue to have challenges to be employed. Even here in California, the governor allocated $76 million to support undocumented people. Trans people who are undocumented were not able to even benefit from those $500 that were distributed, right? And so we were already, within our society before this global pandemic hit, really far behind than any other population. And we know for a fact that because of this global pandemic, the trans movement is going to be set even further behind than how we were. When we talk about creating our own stuff, that's what we have to do. Also, in the middle of a global pandemic last year, we actually learned that for the first time in the history of the state of California, no piece of legislation was crafted, introduced, organized, pushed, mobilized all the way to the governor's desk. And that was Assembly Bill 2218, which is a transgender wellness and equity plan. And so with that piece of legislation, there was $15 million allocated to support trans programming across the state. But because of the pandemic, the money was removed. And so this year, our organization, along with a statewide coalition that we formed of trans-led groups and organizations, we advocated and pushed for that money to be reinstated. Although, you know, the governor didn't allocate the $15 million that were originally allocated for this piece of legislation, there is $13 million that are specifically to support the livelihood of trans people. You know, it's important for us to really think about, and this is what we're doing as an organization, right? And we're going to develop a plan of what is the next 50 years going to look like for trans people, not just in the state of California, but across the nation. We have to show the new generations that there are possibilities for us and that we can make things happen. Wow, Bambi. Oh my gosh. That's incredible when you hear the number. $13 million allocated for supporting trans folks. <laughs> I'd love to know what you think the money should be used for, Bambi, in, in these next 50 years, like you say, but <laughs> I think I'm getting a little ahead of myself. So Carmen, you were talking um, about this sense of urgency that you've been feeling with wanting to get your story out, even if you never thought of yourself before um, as a writer. And so you know, the media really does trickle down and affects more or less all parts of American culture. Folks who are in the public eye really do have the ability to influence positive change. So every time someone in the public eye comes out as queer or trans or non-binary, this means queer representation becomes more widely understood and included. And this in turn helps younger kids around the country maybe feel like they can be living their truth as well. Since someone so public is outspoken about who they are, then kids have someone in the media they can identify with. And so with all that being said, for you, what do you want to write and what kinds of stories do you want to share? I guess it would be more about my story and how my perception, honestly, because it's all in my head. It's like, I am a hundred percent aware of my entire life and everything that I've learned in two different aesthetics of two different gender. And so I've been able to gather so much fascinating points of view that I would love to work um, into a film or a TV show character, because like, for instance, there's been so much change that happened since love Simon came out. And I don't know if you've seen the film, it's a, it gives you like the feels, you know? And like, I think there's a, a lacking of like a soul when it comes to trans people in our story, because we have to sell it so often. We've been the sex worker, the fetishized person. And like, some of us had to force ourselves into those roles and it takes a bit from you, you know? And so I think if we can give people the vision and the view of what it looks like to love a trans person, not to just love a trans person who is cis presenting, because I know I have passing privilege. Absolutely. But that doesn't change the fact of anyone who dates me is going to question what people are going to say about 
you know, him dating a trans person? And also, you know, what are some of my insecurities as a trans person and how my romantic partner could be there for me, how my family could be there for me, how my family has been there for me. I would love to tell that story and and to show so many people who can't even fathom the idea of having unconditional love towards a trans person, aside from maybe pity or looking down at us or judging us, there's an array of other emotions that you can feel. Um, You can empathize for our story, but you can also connect just through the experience of being a human being. And so I would love to see that truly being portrayed on television because what I feel like I've gathered so far, I try to always take myself and my own idea of who I am as a performer, like out of the equation, like I try to think me as a trans person, what trans story have I seen so far on television that restores my faith, that uplifts me, who tells me that I'm important? I haven't seen any. And that's not to like poop on anyone's creative work. Not at all. I'm just being very real and very transparent that the real life that I live, because I don't live under the veil of I'm Carmen Carrera. Like, I wish I could have that kind of ego, but it's not real for me. I have to still go out and deal with what every other woman deals like every other desired woman deals with every uh, Latina woman deals with on top of being trans on top of my own issues that I'm working through, going through what I went through in my transition. So for me, it's like, I know I'm not the only one. Now, I know I'm not the only one Latina trans woman out there. You know what I mean? There's so many of us. So I think it's all about, you know, giving us our soul back on film, on camera. You know, as a queer person myself, I feel really excited and hopeful that at some point stories, whether it's movies or TV shows or podcasts or really any form of media can be fully representative of the complexity and nuances and beauty of LGBTQIA plus lives. And so also what you're saying about your story not existing in the media yet is so true because you're the only Carmen. What you've been through, that's your story. And so sharing your story will be so powerful because no one else can tell your story. And so for you, Bambi, I'd love to know too, in your world, when you envision the steps towards the changes that you'd like to see, what does that look like for for you, Bambi? And what does that look like for the Trans-Latina Coalition? For me, I am realistic that... I probably am not going to live to see the world that I want to live in. But I know that I'm contributing to that world. And so I want to build a world where trans people are not afraid to be who they are. The trans people are not afraid to walk down the street and think that they're going to potentially be attacked or possibly killed. We need to be able to build healthy trans people. And when I'm talking about like healthy trans people and healthy trans community, right? It's not just about, you know, having access to healthcare, right? It's, it's really having the resources that one need in order to not just survive, but actually to thrive in this world. That we don't have to think, where am I going to lay my head? on tonight? What am I going to eat today? Or even getting the jobs that we want, right? Because we are talented people, right? Like we are also creators. All of those things, that's the reality I want to strive for. And I know that that is only going to happen when there's an intentional investment in the lives of trans people. Not just talking about monetary investment. Yes, money is power and we know that. And so money is important. And it's important that we support trans leadership, that we support trans-led organizations that are actually doing the work to also support other trans people, right? And just to give you an example of the investment that needs to happen in trans people and the broader trans movement, um, you know, funders for LGBTQ issues release a report of the funding that is distributed um, among the LGBTQ community. In this report, they highlight that four cents out of every $100 that are granted 
go to translate organizations and groups. Even within the LGBTQ movement, there's a huge disparity in resource distribution and support. And so we need to look at all of those things. You know, there's so many different ways that people can be involved. Um, invest your time, volunteer, trying to get to know us, who we are as people. Organize a fundraiser with your friends, you know, and come to events that we do. You know, we produce an amazing fashion show every year. If you want to get to know the community, come to those shows, right? Like, and leave all of those biases that you have outside, right? Like, get to know who people are, as Carmen is saying. Well, I'd like to aim to move the needle so far forward that, Bambi, you're still around to see a significant change of atmosphere life. We have a window to really cultivate consciousness and to really cultivate the values in which this next generation would carry your message. When you think about the consciousness of our communities and being able to you know, I'm listening to Bambi, I'm listening to Carmen. How do I get in the game? How do I help? There's phases in how you can get involved. And I think one of the biggest ones is to continue to share their stories. Continue to share the community's road to this moment. There's nothing more sobering than really, truly, so fully understanding what has taken your community to get here. And I also to add to that, what Bambi was saying as well, is that we are already a disenfranchised community. And so our resources are very limited. And as much as we are here for each other, I think what would be super beneficial is to have our allies, you know, step in and also be a mentor for us so that we can trickle down that information and that influence to our community. Because, you know, if you put a bunch of disenfranchised people in a room, it's like, we're not going to really be able to help each other out because we won't have the access, the resources, and sometimes even just that inspiration because we're dealing with so much with so little. So I think it would just be huge, so beneficial to us. Um, you know, aside from, yes, you know, showing up for us and understanding our stories and trying to change some of those biases that exist in heteronormative settings, but also to like be there for us and mentor us so that you can help elevate us to honestly just being in a normal, grounded, secure sense of life. Any thoughts, uh, any word of advice or message to um, those brothers and sisters around the world that want to know more or want to find a place? For all the beautiful people who are listening to this session, first, thank you so much for your time and for listening to our conversation. Um, but I also want to ask you two things. One is for you to understand the power that you have as an individual and also as a community and exercise your power anywhere and everywhere you go. You don't need to apologize for being who you are. You can just simply be. And for those who are transgender, non-conforming, non-binary individuals, just know that you are supposed to be here. Know that this earth, your place is situated in this earth because you do have a purpose. And if you don't understand your purpose, it's okay. You only have to understand that your purpose is just to live and exist just as you are. And don't be apologetic about who you are. Just be free as you were when you first came to this existence. I'm so grateful to Bambi and Carmen, not only for their time, but also for getting so vulnerable with us. You know, it's not easy to continue to relive your story and tell it. There is so much strength in their voice and in the road they've traveled. You know, I'm truly committed to doing anything I can to help Bambi live in the world that she's envisioned in her lifetime. She really, truly deserves that and so much more. She fully does. And I can't wait to see the Carmen Carrera movie or TV show when it airs because it will. No one else can tell her story for her. And anyone who's part of the trans community or has trans community in their lives knows that there's so much more to trans stories than what's usually portrayed on screen. I'm stoked and honored that we got to challenge that narrative today with Lisa, Bambi, and Carmen. 
Me too. And I can't wait to continue these conversations next week with essential worker Tim Sutherland, who works in veteran services, followed by a roundtable with my friend Jane Horden, a gold star wife who held multiple roles in the Pentagon from special assistant to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to senior advisor to the Secretary of Defense. Essential Voices with Wilmer Valderrama is produced by me, MR Raquel, Allison Shano, and Kevin Rutkowski, with production support from associate producer Lillian Holman, executive producers Wilmer Valderrama, Adam Reynolds, Leo Clem, and Aaron Hilliard. This episode was edited by Sean Tracy and features original music by Will Rosati. Special thanks to this week's Essential Voice, Lisa Ceballos, and to our thought leaders, Bambi Salcedo from the Trans Latina Coalition and Carmen Carrera. This is a Clamor and WV Entertainment production in partnership with iHeartRadio's My Cultura Podcast Network. For more podcasts from iHeart, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. When are you an American Express member? When you travel with the American Express Platinum Card and have access to Centurion Lounges at over 40 locations worldwide, you're a member. When your American Express Platinum Card gets you seated at exclusive tables at renowned restaurants through Global Dining Access by Resi, you're a member. When you arrive at live events through dedicated American Express Card member entrances at select venues, yeah, you're a member. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Voy a ponerme la vacuna Prevnar 20 porque estoy en riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. La cual pudiera llevarme al hospital. Así que preguntaré sobre Prevnar 20. 65 años o más, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20. Vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente. Una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar20enespañol.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20. Smart journalism, fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. We are revisiting the public school culture wars. What have we learned from the kids who fought against book bans? We really started the club to get students reading these books. Students have an opinion in this fight, too. How has the war over books sparked a backlash to the so-called parents' rights movement? It's not okay what they're doing, and they're being watched. Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app.